and took on the identity of Donnie Brasco. As Donnie Brasco, his stone would infiltrate a mafia crime family. He was to act as a low-level jewel thief looking to work with the mafia. What initially was supposed to be a six-month operation turned into six years. Initially working his way onto a crew that was involved in hijackings and robberies, he kept working his way up. Uh, he dealt with vending machine dealings, uh, which apparently the mafia does, uh, mafia family drama, and in time, opened up a lucrative business for the mafia down in Florida. Eventually, the mafia families liked and trusted Pistone so much that they desired to initiate him into the mafia, not keep him merely as an affiliate, but initiate him in. Now, to get initiated into the mafia, you do have to kill somebody. So it was at that point that the FBI pulled Pistone out, realizing that he had gotten in too deep. The operation was a, su was a success as Pistone gathered intel on the mafia that no one else had even come close to. But I want you to think about Pistone during those six years. Six years is a long time. He went under a complete identity change. Pistone's records were erased from any and all FBI records. If anyone called the FBI asking about uh, Pistone, they would simply reply, they did not have a Joseph D. Pistone working for them and never had. During those six years, he was unable to see, as his, see his wife and daughters. Life as he knew it hadn't just changed. It was like his previous life was completely gone. The idea of going undercover or changing your identity is a familiar story that most of us know. Some of you may have an actual understanding of what it's like, such as the FBI agents in the room. Some of you may be like me, and you only have an understanding of witness protection or of going undercover from movies like Medea's Witness Protection or Sister Act or the movie based on Donnie Brasco. The basis of it is that you completely change your life so that it is almost like you have disappeared from the planet and, and you have taken on an entirely new identity so that ultimately your life can be saved. And that's where we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 6. Paul anticipates a question from last week's text and answers it by explaining the new identity, the brand new identity that all believers have. The main idea of today's text is this. Union with Jesus means that Christians have died to their old ways and live a brand new life. Let me say that again. The main idea of today's text is this. Union with Jesus means that Christians have died to their old ways and live a brand new life. Now, originally when I was preparing for this, uh, for this text, I know most of the time here we typically work our way right verse by verse, so I was trying to break it up in like verses 1 through 4, and then maybe 7 through 9 or something like that, and then 10 and 11. Well, the problem with that is that there's two main ideas in the text here, right? All Christians have died to sin, and all Christians are alive to God, right? That's where I got the uh, main idea of the text from. So he doesn't neatly divide it up in like the first six verses are, dead to sin, the last six verses are alive to God. He jumps back and forth between them because the two ideas are so intertwined. So, if it feels like we're jumping around a little bit today, it's because we are. Uh, however, I think understanding the text in that manner will help us have a better grasp of what Paul is saying here. So, we open with the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We need to ask two questions to understand this question, right? Who is we? And then why is he asking this question, right? Well, ultimately, Paul is writing to Christians living in this Rome. So the we 
are Christians. So this passage is ultimately written with the Christian in mind. That's not to say it doesn't speak to anything that non-believers may be wrestling with, but that is ultimately who the text is written to, right? And to answer the question, why is he asking this question, take a look at chapter 5. Starting in verse 20, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, for sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul just stated, where sin increased, grace increases. He didn't just say grace increases. He said grace abounds to show off the sheer amount of grace that God gives uh, to cover sin, right? So a natural question going along with Paul's logic is, well, shouldn't we sin more so that we can have more grace? I mean, grace is a good thing, right? Well, his answer is by no means. Other translations translate it as God forbid or absolutely not, right? Paul is explicit. This is not even a thing to consider. And why? He, uh, he borrows from Jesus uh, and answers a question with a question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is Paul's thesis, if you will, for this section. It's where I drew the main idea of the passage. He doesn't say explicitly in this verse, right, that Christians live a brand new life and are alive to God, but he does unpack that idea as a consequence of we have died to sin throughout the, uh, throughout the chapter. So first, what does it mean to have died to sin? Well, let's look at this analogy of baptism. Uh, in preparation for this sermon, I consulted three different commentaries that Colby gave me just to kind of have an idea of what was going on in the text. All three commentaries had a different interpretation of what baptism means here, uh, which made my life fun. Uh, however, I believe, just based on how the text reads and how baptism is used throughout the New Testament, Paul isn't trying to be unclear here. I don't think he's necessarily trying to make a bold statement. Rather, he's using an analogy that the audience would easily understand. Now, do we, that, do we believe that baptism saves? Absolutely not, Right? Paul doesn't either. Paul has just spent the past few chapters saying that we have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? He has made that very clear. So if baptism saves, it's just another means of our earning our salvation, which Paul has just spent uh, time explaining is not possible. However, he is writing to an audience of Christians living in Rome. And because of Jesus' words in Matthew 28, we know that all Christians, if possible, should be baptized, right? So the odds are that everyone there, or nearly everyone there, either has been baptized or has a pretty clear understanding of what baptism means, right? So instead of getting extremely technical, Paul is quite simply using baptism to explain what happens at conversion. He's using that language to talk about salvation. It is the same thing in Colossians 2, where he uses the analogy of baptism and circumcision also to discuss what happens in salvation. So all of that to say, when he's talking about baptism here, He's calling them back to remember their own salvation and their own baptism, right? We don't immerse in water mainly for the fact to show that we've been washed clean, although that is part of it, right? We do it as a means to show burial and resurrection. What do we say when we baptize someone? We say, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life with him, right? It's, it comes from this passage. Paul is reminding them that our salvation involves a funeral, Right? We have died with Jesus. Jesus died a natural death. We died a spiritual one. But Paul is trying to say salvation is a two-sided coin. Right? It involves death and life. Okay? And that takes us to verse 5. 
we have been united with him in a death like his. That word unified is actually a gardening word, meaning engrafted. Now, I don't know a ton about gardening, so bear with me as I try to explain this. Uh, Grafting is when you take one plant and attach it to another plant in a manner that they begin to share the same root system and end up either becoming one plant or the plant that's been engrafted to the other one is given life, right? It's done for the purpose of repairing injured trees, strengthening plants' resistance to certain diseases, and adapting varieties to adverse soil or climatic conditions. Paul will later use this same analogy to talk about how the Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom of God. So what he's trying to say is that in salvation, we have been joined to Christ. Christ's death becomes the source for our death. Robert Mount says it like this, Christ's death for sin becomes our death to sin. Our very ability to die to sin draws its source from Christ's death much in the same way that an engrafted branch draws its life source from the plant that it has been joined to. Our salvation unifies us with Jesus in such a way that we can't die to sin. It is impossible for us to die to sin unless his death is the cause or the source of our death. Right? Other translations say that we've been united with him in the likeness of his death. Right? He took on the full wrath of God and died a natural death. We did not take on the full wrath of God and have died a spiritual death. Still, our death to sin is a means of us being unified or branched onto Jesus, right? So, through the analogy of baptism and through helping us understand what Christ's death, or helping us understand that Christ's death for sin is a source of our death to sin, Paul's backing up what he said in verse 2, right? But now we get to start unpacking what it means to have died to sin, right? So he's backed up, hey, we have died to sin. Now, what does that mean that we've died to sin? So check out verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, there's two words that we need to have in mind to understand this. Regeneration and ruling, or reign, but regeneration and ruling. Both are separate thoughts, or both aren't separate thoughts, but are rather two intertwined ideas. You can't really think about one without the other. I do want to give a slight disclaimer. Tim Spies uh, will be uh, preaching a good bit about rain or ruling next week. Um, so I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder. However, they are so closely intertwined that I couldn't talk about one without talking about the other. So regeneration. When Paul says our old self, he's taking us back to the previous chapter, Romans 5, right? Our old man is who we were before Jesus saved us when we were under Adam. Now, Terrence took a bit to explain who we were under Adam last week, but I just want to take a second to refresh us on that, right? Paul describes what we were like under Adam right here. Describes us as a body of sin, right? Not a great picture, a body of sin, right? We are full of corruption, sin, and evil. The rest of the Bible backs this up. For example, Isaiah 64, 5 says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's our righteous deeds. Not just our deeds. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3 describes us as not seeking God, as worthless, that we didn't do good, our throats were an open grave, the venom of snakes was under our lips, our mouths were full of curses and bitterness, we were swift to shed blood, and we didn't know the way of peace. It's not describing those people out there. That's describing us. That's describing you and me. Right? We were so full of sin that everything that we did was sinful. It's not that we did a few things right and a lot wrong. 
It's that we did everything wrong, right? Everything sinful. I'll admit that I often see pre-Christ Cody a lot better than the Bible sees me, right? I often think, ah, I mean, I was okay. You know, I know that I needed Jesus, but I was okay, right? But that's not how the Bible depicts me. Rather, it says that all that encompassed me was sinful. And it's important for us to know that as we seek to understand this passage. All that we did was full of sin. But this passage says that the old man, dominated by sin, has been brought to nothing. It has been crucified, right? Notice it doesn't say that we are to continually crucify. You might hear some uh, old, ba- old Southern Baptist people say that, right? We're to continually crucify the old man, right? But this passage says that our old man has been crucified. We don't have an ever-changing identity. Rather, we have a brand new identity, right? So last week, Terrence talked about justification, which is being made right with God. So much in the same way that if I pay off a speeding ticket, I'm made right with the law. Jesus has paid our penalty, so we are made right with God. The theology term, if you will, that defines this week is regeneration. What is regeneration? It's to be reborn or to be given life. Uh, Here's a way to help you think about just just, uh, what regeneration means. So uh, imagine salvation in this. Jesus is rowing a boat along a lake, okay? We often, or people often think that uh, what happens in salvation is that as Jesus is rowing along the lake, a ton of people around him are drowning, coming up, gasping for air, save me, save me, right? And he's pulling them in, they're gasping for breath, and eventually they're fine. They're in the boat with him, and they're good. That's not the picture, though, that Scripture gives us. Uh, The Scripture gives us this almost eerie setting of Jesus rowing a, a boat along the lake, and it's silence. There's just bodies face down around him, and he is going by picking them up one by one and breathing life into their lungs. So as they gasp, they're not gasping for air on their own. He's, they're gasping the air that he has given them, right? That's what, that's what the scripture tells us about salvation. And that's a big difference, right? Ezekiel 34 tells, us, tells it like this. It looks ahead to the new covenant, right, that we are now in. and describes God as removing hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh, Right, we are given new lives. That old man has died, and a new man with a brand new life lives in his place. So we have been regenerated or given life, as verse 6 says. But it doesn't stop there. I want you to take a look at verse 6 for me. Right? I want you to notice the words, so that. Right? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That old man hasn't died so that we can just go back to doing whatever we wanted to do. That would be us returning back to being the old man. Rather, we've been set free from the ruling or reign of sin in in our life. Think about it this way. When you die, you are free from earthly things. You could be $40,000 in debt, but when you die, no matter what you believe about what happens after after we die, you personally do not owe that $40,000 in debt, right? It's in the same way that we have been freed from sin. We're enslaved by sin in such a way that it felt almost like we had a debt to it. Anyone here who's been in significant amount of debt, I know they talked about financial peace a couple weeks ago. If you've been in a significant amount of debt, it feels like you're enslaved to it. That's, kinda, that's how we were acting with sin. We were enslaved, right? But now that person has died, and we are a new person, a completely different person living in that person's place, right? Sin no longer holds the same power over us as it did before. We no longer obey whatever passions we formerly followed without thinking about it. 
Sin no longer has the corrupting dominion over us that it once did. Rather, we are now people who are alive and free to follow God. You may be saying, Cody, that sounds great, but I'm still struggling. I'm still struggling with sin. Well, let's go back to verse 2 with these things in mind, right? Regeneration and ruling, right? Verse 2 states, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That word live means to continue in or abide in, right? It shows a settled course in life. It's not referring to the acts of committing sin, which Christians still do, as Paul will actually discuss in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 7, but refers to, the continue, to continuing to live under the dominion of sin. Now, you may be feeling like you are still living under the dominating power of sin. You know that you struggle, some of you in the room, yeah, I struggle with sin, but I feel like I'm not living under the dominating power. Others in the room may feel there's that one particular sin that just feels like it has a grip on my life, right? I want to offer you a word of encouragement. First, the fact that you feel conviction over that sin and the fact that you are struggling with that sin, even if you feel like you're fighting a losing battle, is a sign of the Spirit's work in your life, right? You're no longer just submitting to it, but you're fighting at least some of the time and feel conviction when you, when you commit the sin. And second, I want you to think about the course of your life for a moment. I think I put a graph in the slideshow, Tony. All right, so I want you to think about it like this, right? So this is basically an investment graph, okay? You keep putting in the same amount of money, keep running the same formula over and over. Now, you may feel like you're at five, okay? And at five, it looks like there is no change at all, right? Same with 10. You still feel like you're making no change. But as you continue to run that same formula over and over and over, Look at where you're at at 100. You're in a completely different place than where you were at at 10. And it's the same thing with the Christian life, right? It may feel like you are having the hardest time not letting sin rule over your life. But let me encourage you that even if you are beginning to submit to the Spirit in the tiniest ways, it can alter the course of your life. That's what we call sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Jesus. Regeneration starts that process of sanctification, right? And that's what Paul's trying to get at. For us to continue to live in sin would keep us on that same path. It would keep us right at the very bottom of that graph, right? However, by God regenerating us and giving us that new life, it may feel slow at first, but eventually your life will end up in a place where you cannot even imagine. So we've been freed from sin, and the course of our life has been altered but what direction do we take now? All right, go back to verse 4. It says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, right, in order that, we said so that earlier, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We don't die for the purpose of death. Rather, we die so that we might walk in the newness of life. Just as we're united with Jesus in death, we're united to him in the life that we now live. What does that newness of life look like? Well, Paul states in the next verse that we're united in a resurrection like Jesus. Okay, we talked earlier about what it means to be grafted onto Jesus into his death. Now I want you to think about what that means for his resurrection, right? Think back to that gardening illustration. 
When you graft a branch onto a new tree, that tree becomes the source of life for that branch. Whether that branch lives or dies is up to the tree. Much in the same way, our life source is now Jesus. We get all of our sustenance, our character, and any and everything that makes us up from Jesus. Much in the same way that nutrients are passed from a tree to the new branch, Jesus' character is continually passed on to us. This isn't just the changing of appearance. This isn't just putting on a costume. This is taking on a whole new DNA. I've often heard that people, uh, to take it back to Donnie Brasco, I've often heard that people who go undercover have a hard time going back to their normal way of life because they've taken on so much of their alter ego's identity, right? And much in the same way, when we are renewed and brought into a new resurrected life with Jesus, we take on all sorts of new personality changes, if you will, right? It's not, it's not just a personality change. It's a difference in how we act and how we live. It's not just a, I can do this and I'll be okay, but it's a difference in how we think and how we view the world, and that's caused by the Spirit and salvation. Next, I, I want you to notice a difference in language as well, right? Verse 6 says that we are enslaved to sin. Verse 8 says that we will live with Jesus as we both live to God, Think about what that means for us. What's the difference between living with someone and being enslaved to someone? All right, I'm going to use a marriage analogy. Please, no one use this as ammo when you get home. Uh, That was my main concern with this. But uh, in marriage, right, you live with someone, right, in a healthy marriage. You are two equals who are seeking to love one another. In a sense, it's the two of you, right, with each other against the world. A marriage starts to go sideways when one person starts to live to the other, right? If the husband is domineering and makes it so that the wife does everything that he asks, even if it's not for her good, we would consider that an unhealthy marriage. Same if it was flipped. If the wife is domineering and getting the husband to do anything and everything for in a domineering way, uh, we would consider that an unhealthy marriage. And that's the difference between our being enslaved to sin and our living with Jesus, right? Jesus cares for us and has our good at heart. He's walking alongside of us and not lording over us in the same domineering manner of sin. Uh, Here's how the Bible describes what Jesus has done for us and what he continues to do for us. 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Hebrews 4, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews 5, he deals gently with the ignorant and wayward. Hebrews 7, Jesus is interceding for you now. 1 John 2, Jesus is our advocate to the Father when we sin. Matthew 11, Jesus himself says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11 also describes him as a friend to the least of these. Galatians 2 says that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly had compassion on those around him. And I want you to consider that for a moment. Think on that, right? Jesus, the very Son of God, the most gracious, kind, loving, powerful, glorious man to ever walk the face of the earth, And now the word says we get to live with him. 
with him, right? The person who has dominion over death, as verse 9 states, is who we get to live with. Jesus, the source of all life itself, is who we are united to, right? And now we get to live with Jesus, right? This most powerful person who's constantly working for our good as we both live a life to God, right? So there comes that word to again, right? So I just want you to notice the difference between, it says we're enslaved to sin, but now we live with Jesus as we live to God, not enslaved to God. He actually does use that analogy later in chapter 6, but says that it actually falls short, right? It's we are living to God. So now I want you to, think, I want you to uh, listen to how the Bible describes God the Father as we live to him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. Others say cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Luke 15, he is the father who runs to us in joy and prepares a feast as we come home to him. Ephesians 1 says God lavishes his grace on us. Think about that word lavishes for a second. Lavishes his grace on us and gives us an inheritance. Ephesians 2, God is rich in mercy. God doesn't just have mercy. He's rich in mercy, right? Galatians 4, God adopts us as sons and daughters. He had, think about that analogy of adoption. He adopts us as sons and daughters, right? John 6, God will never, ever cast out those who come to him. Hebrews 4, God will never, no never, no never forsake you. 2 Corinthians 1, he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Exodus 34, he describes himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the difference between our previous self and our new self. We are now living to a God who uh, uh, deeply cares for us and does not want to see us go to ruin as sin did, but works all things together for our good as we love him, as Paul will later tell us. And then we get to verse 11, right? It's the application of our passage. This is actually the first command that Paul gives in all of Romans. And what does it say? Consider yourselves, or sorry, work harder so that sin may not reign over you. Right? No. It's not what it says. It says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means simply to trust in the gospel. Consider yourselves the way that God considers you. For the believers in the room, that's the application. Trust in the gospel. Relax in the fact that God has saved you and that he sees you as he sees his son. Sin-free, stain-free. You are in right standing with God and have literally been changed into an entirely different person. Jesus has given you righteousness and has given you a new life. You are a brand new person who's been changed from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Trust in that. Now, for those of you who are not believers, right, I don't think I've spent too much time addressing that, but I want to take some time to address that now. You may be wondering, I don't know what this means for me. Well, I want you to think about how much you've messed up in life, okay? Don't, don't even think about the word sin, right? I just want you to think in your own life um, how you've messed up, let others down, or have done wrong. You know the guilt that you carry from the wrongs that you've committed in life. Jesus is calling you today 
to a new life, a new life now. He's asking that you have faith that what he says is true, that he is God in the flesh, and that he has satisfied the wrath of the Father so that you can have a relationship with him. I don't want you to think about what that means for the future yet, right? I just want you to think about how that impacts your life now. Think about this next week, how that would impact your life. Imagine, just think, imagine the kind of life you can live when you are no longer a slave to your own passions and desires, but can live freely in the way that God has called you to, right? Jesus is calling you to a free life. Think back on those verses that we just went through and think about how that would impact your life now. So as we lead into communion, I want to encourage everyone in the room to take a chance to reflect. Each and every one of you know the sins that you have committed in the past week, right? Maybe you were short with your spouse. Maybe you lied to your boss. Maybe you watched explicit material, right? Christians, whatever comes to mind, I want you to take some time to reflect on the fact that Jesus has already forgiven you. Take time to rejoice in the fact that you don't have to earn your way back into God's favor and that his spirit is changing you and is working on you as we speak. And for those in the room who don't consider themselves Christians, think about the guilt that you may have from the wrong that you've done over the past week. What are you going to do with it? I'd encourage you, if you're wrestling with that, find somebody after the service to talk to. I'd love to have a conversation with you myself, and I'm sure there are many in the room who feel the same way. Hope that the word has encouraged you today as it has for me this past week. Let's pray. Lord, we're uh, yeah, just thankful for the fact, God. Uh, I sometimes just don't know what to say in prayer except thank you. Um, Lord, you didn't uh, create us and then leave us on our own, Lord, but you created us, and though we continually rebel against you, Lord, you stayed uh, and continue to stay continually involved in our lives. Lord, you didn't just save us and then leave us on our own to figure it out. Lord, the word says that you have given us a helper, even now, uh, as we are seeking to constantly love you, Lord, and worship you all the more. Lord, we pray today as we go out throughout this week, Lord, that we would consider ourselves the way that you have considered us, Lord. Lord, that you would help us to relax in the fact that you have sinned us, Lord, or that, sorry, that that you have forgiven us of sin, Lord. I pray that you would uh, continue to work in our lives, Lord, as we continue to live on a completely different path, or that we are no longer following the path that we once were, Lord, but that we're on a completely new course in life. Lord, help us in that, Spirit, help us in that. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.